Greetings and salutations, you're listening to the Into the North Podcast, where we take a look at the competitive side of the Commander format, also known as CDH. I'm your host, Reed, aka Sick Robot, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Morgan, aka Spleenface. How's it going, everyone? Uh, and in this episode, we're going to be covering uh, a topic that we've sort of danced around a bit uh, over the past, like, two or three years of uh, podcasting, uh, but haven't really covered comprehensively, and that's going to be uh, building interaction suites in your decks. Um... Big topic, but we're going to try to break it down into some uh, reasonably bite-sized chunks uh, for easy listening. Um, uh, I would say what have we been up to since last episode, but uh, I think the answer from both of us is not much. <laughs> Just uh, living life, I guess. Um, so uh, we would also hop into housekeeping, although we don't really have much to say for housekeeping either. Um, we don't have any new patrons for this episode, but again, I will say, uh, if you would like to become a patron, you're happy to do so, and uh, or we would be happy for you to do so, and uh, there's a link to do such in the uh, description for the episode. Um, helps keep the lights on for the show, helps keep us, uh, you know, doing stuff like uh, working toward getting the uh, the gameplay episodes out, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. so um, that would be much appreciated, uh, but we will just say thanks here to all of our uh, existing patrons. You guys rock. You sure do. <laughs> <laughs> um, not much, of you at least. Yeah, just uh, uh, I'll say a, a heavy majority. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. The uh, in terms of new developments, also not much to say here. Um, we're sort of speed running the intro to this episode. This might be the fastest intro before the main topic that we've ever done, honestly. <laughs> yeah, but like, think about how fast it could have been if we'd yeah. actually just skipped. The just skipped all of it. I, I mean, I, I don't want to disorient our listeners too much. Come on, you gotta give them at least a sense of structure. You can't just hop right into the main topic. <laughs> Although that yeah, is, we what are I'm professionals, going to do. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? That is what I'm going to do immediately, though. Which is, uh, yeah, we're gonna get into our main topic like right now. Um, so we're just gonna be sort of going through um some some general like high level uh concepts behind. Uh, how you build interaction suites in CDH. And by interaction, we mean uh, primarily like stuff like instant speed interaction. So counter magic, uh, removal. I mean, obviously some sorcery speed removal as well. Um, uh, things that potentially interact with maybe graveyards, uh, like other weird stuff in the stacks, like stuff like stifles. Just anything, anything for the most part that uh, tends to be put onto the stack in an instantaneous manner that interacts with other permanents or other <laughs> game objects. <laughs> um so yeah uh i think the way that i at least want to start this and i think it makes uh sense uh, to start talking about interaction packages is uh sort of like realistically um starting from uh not the cards that you want to play in your interaction package or even necessarily like the specific effects that you want in your in your interaction packages um but really like what you actually want to put interaction in your deck to achieve um, and what you want out of it. Um, I think we've had this, uh, or we've uh, sort of talked about this a bit before, uh, and I've gone over some terminology that I like to use just to uh, be relatively clear on what I mean uh, when I'm talking about different pieces of interaction. Um, so just to reintroduce that to our audience, um, I think we're going to be using these a lot uh, in this episode, which is uh, the terminology of protective and disruptive interaction. Um, protective interaction being uh, stuff like counter magic that's stopping opponents from interacting with your win attempts or uh, removal potentially to like, I would even call this like removal to uh, remove stacks pieces that are stopping you from going off. 
Um, whereas disruptive is uh, disruptive uh, interaction is uh, more about interacting with other people's game plans, stopping other people from uh, either winning or uh, sticking maybe pieces that would put them very far ahead in the game that you don't want necessarily want them to have for a protracted period of time. Um, just sort of like inter interacting with other people's permanents and spells in the stack that like would uh, be heavily proactive for opponents that like countering an ad nauseum would be disruptive. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's it's really about, like, are you protecting your game plan or disrupting their game plan is like, because I know a lot of people have used terms like, you know, offensive and defensive, yeah. and <laughs> it's like, Just wait, is offensive counter magic like counter magic for when you're on the offense, or is it like... <laughs> that you're using against other people, anyways. Uh, <laughs> or is it just, or is it just really profane counter magic that you don't really want to read the names of the cards for? <laughs> like, I mean, arcane denial is pretty offensive, <laughs> yeah, right? So. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, uh, honestly, like I, I would say, like primarily, um, if I were to do like the highest level categorization of. Uh, interaction suites in various decks. I, I think probably the highest level differentiation you could get to is like, is this interaction suite pr uh, protective or disruptive? Um, a lot of the time. Like, you're obviously there are going to be elements of both, and like, actual factual counterspell could be both disruptive and protective, depending on how you use it. Um, but there are a lot of uh, effects that are better in one use, use case than another, and a lot of, uh, a lot of interaction suites will either lean toward one or lean toward the other. Um, so a protective counter magic suite or protective interaction suite might be, you know, might be potentially a lot lower on uh, removal, potentially. You're not looking to really, like, remove people's permanence that they've already resolved. You're just sort of trying to stop them from pointing counter magic at your stuff. So maybe you're, like, very low on removal and you're instead much higher on stuff like Flusterstorm or Dispel or Mental Misstep or things that, like, would primarily be looking at um, stopping opponents from interacting with you. Also things like, you know, Silence and Veil of Summer are probably, like, the most, um, like, most widely played, like, almost strictly protective uh, interaction. I mean, I don't, I don't know that Silence is strictly uh, Sure. But certainly veil, the Veils yeah. are, tend yeah. to be very uh, protective. Yeah. Um... And if you want to build a proactive, uh, pro protective interaction uh, suite, um, a lot of the time you're going to be looking at, um, it, it's going to end up looking like a lot of stuff that targets instants on the stack uh, and typically costs a relatively low amount of mana because you're, you tend to be mana uh, limited when you're trying to both resolve spells and protect them. Um, so you, these will tend to look like very, like protective interaction suites will tend to look very low to the ground and very focused on um, on stack interaction specifically and interacting with the other instance. Um, it'll also it'll also tend to involve um, effects that are like much more or or like often it'll involve effects that are like narrowly tailored to exactly what you're trying to protect from. I think a good example of this is uh, cards like Pyro and Red Blast, where um, their best use by far is stopping other people's counter spells. Yeah. Um, they don't. They don't actually hit very many win cons. Um, or uh, another thing is like you might be trading uh, when when it comes to removal and less counter spells. Um, you're probably going to be trading the permanency of the effect or card advantage for um, mana efficiency. So like a a card like a March of Swirling Mists. 
where uh you can use it pretty cheaply to just like phase it all the stacks effects make your attempt um is something that tends to be more protective whereas you know things that actually like kill the stacks pieces permanently and don't give you card disadvantage uh would fit more into a disruptive suite yeah that's a great point actually um i i think like in the uh i'd say the uh probably like the prime differentiator here would be like chain of vapor versus swords to plowshares um or like a like a very easy dichotomy there of like chain of vapor being very much like a um yeah, like not permanent very temporary solution to problems but a very powerful solution to those problems in terms of it can be proactive and also like and uh, get stuff off the board very cheaply whereas swords to plowshares is more uh is a bit like more narrow but like a lot more permanent and a lot more uh about getting rid of a creature uh and like having it be gone for multiple turns later Basically, exactly what Morgan just said. Um, and then on the other side, uh, obviously, disruptive uh, uh, interaction suites, which are uh, becoming sort of rarer and rarer by <laughs> the year, by the day. I don't know. Um, they're just pretty rare right now. It's uh, it's it's rare that a deck will want to be on the uh, disruptive side of interaction right now. Um, obviously, uh, you'll see a lot of these types of uh, suites in decks like uh, like Mono Blue, like Blue White will typically have more disruptive interaction suites. A lot of like low color blue decks, um, just in general, um, and like cards like this are typically um, they're typically going to be or end up being wider reaching and sort of more broadly applicable to a lot of situations thinking um something like dispel versus like actual factual counterspell um here where uh if you're in a disruptive role a lot of the time you want to prevent the uh, situation of having all the wrong answers come up like you want to prevent that as much as possible so you want your answers to be relatively wide reaching to be able to interact with a lot of uh different um sort of avenues and sort of uh, uh strategies that opponents are uh looking at um trying to force through um it's also interesting to sort of analyze the uh disruptive interaction and sort of think about like what they actually uh are wanting to interact with because a lot of the time like you're going to be able to play actual factual counterspell on your deck but maybe it's not efficient enough and you do have to maybe go a bit more cheap and uh add on some restrictions uh to your interaction um, so you really have to think about if you do, or if you are making those trade-offs, um, what you're actually being disruptive toward. Um, there are a lot of different requirements for if you want to interact with, say, a creature on the stack. Maybe you want to counter a Thassa's Oracle versus countering an Ad Nauseam. Um, the, the cards that do both of those things look tend to look very different. Yeah, certainly. I think that's, like, one of the, one of the most, uh, like, sort of important dynamics in CDH is certainly, like, counter spells that hit creatures they've seen we've seen like huge var variation in how playable they are and like how valuable they are and um you know also from the side of people playing creatures there's been big swings in like how strong is it to just have this effect on a creature um because they're typically much harder to to deal with on the stack um and, you know, we've seen big swings in playability for cards like Grand Abolisher and Ranger Captain in particular. Yep. Grand Abolisher is like the classic where it's a... Grand Abolisher is a very, very powerful card uh, when interaction suites are geared toward 
interacting with the stack and like interacting with the instance and tends to become a lot less powerful and sort of just like a, a more expensive silence and a more color requirement silence when people are playing like literal counter spells or just things that interact with creatures well um there are like some pretty distinct categories i'd say though like just going through um in terms of like what uh, disruptive interaction actually does work on um, I think like the the classic ones that you'll almost always see um, are things that disrupt instants and sorceries on the stack. Um, these tend to be very cheap um, on on rate. Uh, you like obviously again dispel, fluster storm, swan song. Um, even uh, negate is uh, like less color intensive than uh, counter spell, like literal counter spell, which sort of gives you an idea of. Um, sort of the the effective rates of that effect versus being able to counter creatures. Uh, and then in terms of being disruptive in interaction period, um, you can also sort of evaluate whether or not you can wait to deal with a creature once it's in play using stuff like Swords of Plowshares, or if you need to handle a creature on the stack um, and you need to use stuff like, again, Catterspell, Mana Drain, Voice of Will uh, to handle like potentially maybe a Thassa's Oracle or a Dockside on the stack where it, the removal isn't quite effective versus those. Um, and then on the other side as well, looking at uh, stuff that potentially interacts with uh, non-creatures in play versus uh, non-creatures on the stack, removal versus a negate, obviously, so something like a nature's claim versus, uh, again, just stack interaction. Uh, cool. Um, so that I, I would say if that's the primary um, way that we might delineate um, between interactive suites or like uh, maybe like a interactive effects um that you might be looking to include in your deck um there are a few other also like secondary um splits and sort of delineations that you can uh draw sort of lines in the sand um and also um just ways of thinking about um how you actually want to build your interaction suite um one that we have here is uh thinking about sort of like the the prelude to you actually casting your interaction in a game of magic um so sort of like how are you setting up the situations where uh, you're looking to make this um, this interaction valuable? Um, so this is stuff like uh, potentially do you care about like maybe your own spell limiting? So if you're playing a bunch of rule of laws, maybe you don't want to just stock up on sorcery speed interaction. Maybe you want to be able to meter out your spells in other people's turns. Um, if you're playing mana denial strat uh, strategy, like maybe you want to look at maybe even if you are a slow deck and slow decks traditionally are able to cast like two and three mana interactive spells maybe you want to cut down on those and still say stay lower to the floor on those um stuff like if you're already planning a holding up mana on other people's turns um you might be able to afford certain types of interaction like stuff like narset's reversal um where you wouldn't normally be able to play those because you might want to uh focus on uh, effects that are also useful um just in general uh, when you're not like holding up meta already on other people's turns. Yeah, and and I think like it's also important um to to think about uh I guess this or sorry, it's important to think about um, you know, your your cards and what your other cards need to be doing. Um particularly uh, obviously free interaction is good. Uh, <laughs> wow it doesn't crazy mana. <laughs> i know right but uh, a lot of free interaction uh costs additional cards so you've got like both forces uh misdirection you know stuff like that where uh or you know force of vigor uh, yep. th you know, uh there's a bunch of these effects yeah 
um, that have seen, you know, some amounts of play. Uh, and you definitely need to be considering, can you support that amount of, like, you know, that, that damage to your hand? Um, and, it, and also, like, can be a you problem, even, like, And obviously them, right? the color density <laughs> yeah. as well. Um, definitely a lot of... Uh, a lot of decks tend to, you know, particularly like high color uh, blue decks, like uh, like Kenrith stacks type builds. Um, people tend to want to include Force of Will because it's obviously an incredibly powerful card. And then you look at the deck and you're like, oh, I'm playing like maybe ten blue cards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, this might be a bit of a problem to try and to try and support. Um, and this is. Uh, you know something that you you definitely need to be keeping in mind um in terms of in terms of casting your spells particularly with the free ones and also uh with the commander free ones deflecting swat fierce guardianship and deadly relic um i've seen a lot of people put those in decks that probably don't cast their commanders that often <laughs> yeah and, like you're uh, you're playing like a 5 mana commander and it's not even particularly integral to your game plan and it's just not in play for half the games <laughs> Yeah, um, and so those are definitely uh, important things to sort of think about. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, there's also, I mean, actually getting into yeah, uh, it's sort of like something that you touched on earlier in that point about um being able to support like actually like having the cards in hand to pitch. Um, I I'm sort of topping it of the order of what we have in our show notes here, but I think it's a really interesting tie-in of like um sort of thinking about like how much interaction you're playing as well um being that uh potentially if you're playing a deck that doesn't really have access to a lot of cards consistently you know have a card engine in the command zone and um but maybe you're not in black so you can't really readily access like rhystic study or you can't readily access some form of a value engine that'll produce cards semi-reliably um you're going to have a hard time going up like to higher numbers of counter magic and still having a functional deck because a lot of the time you're just going to be ending up playing these games where you have like half of a combo and you're trying to draw toward like literally any gas in your deck um every draw step and instead you're ripping counter spells and removal off the top which is like really not what those decks need in those situations <laughs> I, I definitely uh i certainly i think one of the biggest experiences with that for me was uh, Kickar, yeah, where like the commander doesn't generate any card advantages, generates mana advantage, and it's super easy in your head to be like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna be able to hold up mana because I'll have these you know tokens to sack, and I can interact with everyone, and then you like draw hands that have you know some mana rocks, like maybe one card advantage spell, and then some interaction, and you're going like, oh well, I'm not actually <laughs> uh... like. <laughs> I can lose this game slowly, but you know I can buy exactly. myself I can buy myself two turn cycles and boy I really hope one of the top two cards in my deck is good. <laughs> Just does like literally anything. Um which is also that that's sort of interesting as well because I feel like um especially evaluating like existing decks interaction suites, I feel like people a lot of the time tend to get hung up on um like the the decks uh like archetype or sort of like the game plan in general and just like sort of assuming that the entire like all of the selections in the interaction suite were made uh with that specific idea in mind where like a lot of the time the actual delineation is like if you look at the difference between like rock and blue farm lists um those tend to be like 
relative, I mean, obviously, Blue Farm's becoming more and more mid-range by the day, but um, Blue Farm can just sort of afford to play more random bits of interaction in the deck um, and can sort of play, like, looser with its interaction package because it has two massive uh, value engines in the command zone, and you just sort of see more cards every game, whereas, like, Rogsai, just very reliant on its opening hand, cannot afford to dedicate that many slots to, like, more narrow, narrow interaction or interaction that reaches a bit outside of its, like, primary proactive game plan. Um, which is, like, not, like, you, you would expect, potentially, going in, looking at those two decks, being like, okay, I mean, there's, like, one color of difference, so, like, maybe there's a Silence and a Swords in this, uh, four-color deck, but, like, these have, like, relatively similar strategies. I, like, I would assume that the, uh, the interaction suites are relatively similar. <laughs> it's like, no, there's, there, there's more going on behind the scenes there for, uh, selecting for, uh, what you want to play in those suites. Yeah, I think, I think that's, uh... That's an example that like solidifies it really well. I just, as you said that, I pulled up uh, the the two lists from the database, and like uh, you know, force of negation is not in the uh, Rograx Silas uh, yeah. primer that's that's on the database. And if you think about, it, you might think like, well, free interaction, it's it's super strong. The deck has a high enough density of blue cards to support it, but obviously, it's a much more proactive deck than. Than Tim Necrom, you know, you yep. really just need to be going for it, and uh, it doesn't work on your turn. You can't cast it for free to protect your own wins a lot of the time. Plus, uh, like the card advantage issues are very, very real in that deck. Where, yeah, uh, if you like wait a turn and hold up interaction and then pitch two cards, like that, it takes two car two turns to get those cards back. Yeah, uh, because you just don't have any sort of consistent access to to card advantage. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, like, we're going to get people yelling at us because we used specifically that, uh, <laughs> that example, which is potentially going to draw some ire. But um, obviously, like, there are, again, other reasons why these things are in place. Uh, like, for example, Force Negation, not just because of what we talked about. There's also, you know, Rock'sai expecting to be the fastest deck at the table a lot of the time doesn't necessarily really need the free interaction on specifically other people's turns you typically run force negation if you're not expecting to be the absolute fastest deck at the table but the the arguments that we're laying out here and sort of the the reasonings for why these things at least hold true at, at least in part there are definitely contributing factors here that have to do with them um, the card advantage in the command zone etc well, well i mean so there is some truth to that. I will point out that the Rogsai primer is on both Days and Deadly Relic. That is fair. So it's it's going pretty deep on free interaction. Um so I wouldn't necessarily like just just put it as simply as you know, because you're expecting to be the fastest deck at the table, you don't actually well, I, need to disrupt. I, I, I was people, talking about but... like force negation specifically, right? In terms of like you're you're stopping other people from like getting ahead of you versus like days and relic can obviously be used on your own turn, um, during your winning turn. Um, sure. again, yeah. and then we can go even further down that hole because people will come out of the woodwork and be like well no because you could use force negation to counter like a rule of law or deadly silence or deafening silence on turn one and like stop yourself from being stacked out yes I'm not going down that road We're gonna, I, I'll cut it off here <laughs> with the the depth of this argument I'm just it's literally everybody listening plus Morgan listening to me right now is literally just like listening to me have like a shower argument with myself and like trying to plan out it's like doing the reverse of, like, revisiting an argument that you just had with somebody and, like, coming up with a comeback in the shower. It's just me sitting on a podcast trying to cover all of the ways that people are going to 
<laughs> just being okay, annoyed so, at so us so for these how examples. How about this? I'll, I'll throw you a bone. <laughs> Instead of force navigation, pretend I was talking about snapback. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> Much more appreciated. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, but so... Again, sort of like getting back to the main topic here. Um, uh, sort of like in a similar similar manner to talking about um, the speed of decks, not necessarily maybe the uh, uh, card advantages of the command zone. Um, there's also, uh, a, I, I would say, a, a deeper discussion to be had on color requirements of interaction uh, than is probably uh, normally had on um, like just random Discord rambling arguments and discord discussions about this kind of stuff or like stuff on like i don't know like stuff on twitter about uh like interaction suites and stuff like that um which is uh like obviously yes blue blue is harder to guess than one blue 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 is also more mana than a single blue yep got all that um but there there really is some interesting stuff here that sort of ties in with uh stuff that we've talked about before about um figuring out what like lands you want to fetch on early turns how you want to split your colors across your entire mana base when you have like a bunch of duels you want to figure out what the correct balances in balances is balances are oh my that took me f like three attempts um correct balance is <laughs> balances uh but um the idea being that uh in your interaction suite um there is a very real consideration to be made a lot of the time that um you probably actually if you can afford to it if you can find interaction that meets your like all your other criteria um you might want to look at your interaction suite uh, or potential interaction suite and then look at the rest of your deck and the specifically the uh colors uh required to cast uh, impactful cards that you will um probably be wanting to protect or potentially that you're developing at sorcery speed to then hold up disruptive uh, countermatching on other people's turns, and try to figure out if you can uh, build a inter an interaction suite that's heavier on the colors that those like sorcery speed spells uh, don't need uh, to be used to cast. So potentially, I'm playing maybe a Bant deck um, with just a ton of like blue uh sorcery speed stuff that i want to get into play there's a bunch of stuff that looks like rhystic study but is maybe worse like i'm playing like verity circle or i'm playing like just like steel enchantment just like a bunch of stuff that costs double blue that i want to cast at sorcery speed or that like i want to cast during my um my winning turn um in this oh, like when people played legacies allure god dude. <laughs> i i actually i do because i played that card um but just like if you're playing this hypothetical deck and you're you're building an interaction suite, um, even if you are more disruptive uh, or you're like slower and you want to be more disruptive through the rest of the table, um, a lot of the time, like you, you're probably actually going to be wanting to uh, just integrate more stuff. Like maybe instead of a uh, dispel in your deck, you're like actually just playing uh, Veil or um, Autumn's Veil because it's easier on your mana. You like maybe have you're playing Dorks because you need the mana accelerant. And you just, like, have a bunch of extra green left over a lot of the time. And it's a lot easier to have your interaction cast for either white or blue when you're developing... Um, or, sorry, white or green, rather. Um, when you're developing things that cost blue uh, at sorcery speed. Or you want to be casting things that cost blue without waiting for other people to do their own thing. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really good example. Because I, I've certainly, like, fallen into the trap of... And, and it is, like, it can be difficult to split the difference. Yeah. Um, 
because, like obviously you uh, want to still be playing the good blue counter magic right like obviously i'm still gonna be playing uh like force of wills and stuff but even past there like this slow of a deck probably still wants to be on managing a lot of the time you're still looking at like good card quality but yeah no but, but what i was gonna say is you want to split the difference on uh like you know using the example of a bant deck oftentimes on your turn the spells you're going to be casting that you don't care about as much are green right like you're just running out your extra dorks or yep. whatever that you know there, there's like a lot of green creatures that typically just aren't interacted with that much um and so you know th your thought naturally there is oh well i'll play blue interaction so like i spend my green mana on my turn casting elves and then i hold up blue mana on my opponent's turn for counterspell and that makes sense a lot of the time but oftentimes if if your entire deck if, if like all the cards that you actually really care about resolving and think people are gonna stop you from trying to resolve are uh are blue then like maybe blue interaction isn't ideal there i've, I've definitely noticed uh particularly playing razaketh or like razakats yep. and decks with yep. razaketh in it where i'm like oh yeah I, I don't need that much black mana and then like i'll i'll hit that point of the game where i i'm like oh this is a game <laughs> where i'm casting razaketh <laughs> yep. um and then all of a sudden it's like this big awkward like i'll spend like two fetches in a row getting extra black mana and like you're like to set spinning, up spinning thrasios trying to hit like a land like a black land off the top to like yeah. get more sources in uh, play and so so like it is it is something worth keeping in mind um and again you do need that balance of particularly on early turns uh you want your interaction to not be the same color as the permanents you don't care about. Yep. But then on later turns, you want it to be not the same color as the permanents you do care about. And if those aren't the same color, it can be a little bit tricky to figure out exactly uh, what you want to be doing. But I think I think Autumn's Veil is, is an excellent example of, honestly, a card that's like maybe a little underplayed in permanent based decks yeah like no, particularly seriously. ones that are trying to develop that where their impactful permanents tend not to be green like you're yep. trying to develop white stacks pieces uh autumn's veil can be really really nice like honestly like uh i don't know i i was ab i was about to make a statement out of the book i gotta go check the database list first yeah, like, <laughs> I gotta continue on, like, I didn't have to go just to go do that. But, like, for something like Teamer Pirates, right? Like, you, like, honestly, the Autumn's Veil could honestly be, like, just super, super okay in that deck already, just because you're, it feels like a lot of the time you are playing, like, some of the Mono Green Dorks, you are playing, like, the Lanor Elves, Elvish Mystic, Finhorn Elves a lot of the time in that deck. You're, might be, you might be fetching for, like, Tropical Island a lot of the time. And if you're trying to cast your Glenhorn Buccaneer, for one red red obviously malcolm helps out with that but maybe you also want to be able to cast green interactive spells off your dorks while doing that um anyway that is a long way to say i agree i think autumn's veil is actually pretty underplayed right now i think that card's good <laughs> does does a lot of work um but obviously like we're we're talking about this in the context of dorks decks because this is a really easy thing to talk about and like we i feel like we both played a decent amount of bant and have had like specifically that issue before of like wow i have a whole lot of green mana and like not much to do with it here like all my impactful spells cost not green 
um it's but this curse. is it's an endless curse <laughs> but this is but this is uh also like super uh, super applicable even to like grixis decks where it's like okay like i'm playing a lot of red rituals here maybe i want to actually just play both red blasts because i find that like i don't actually need to interact with other people that much and i really need to stop them from countering my stuff um so i'm going to replace a couple of uh like blue counter spells that i've been playing and instead of replacing them with uh, the red blasts just so i actually like have the colors to be able to interact with people consistently on my uh, winning turns um and then also like we're talking about stack interaction here um this also holds uh, very much true with a uh, with a uh, removal um so potentially i'm playing a uh I, another hypothetical i'm playing a um i'm playing a bug deck um i like uh have a very similar issue with a uh, green like i have a lot of extra green uh, and then typically I want to be using blue for interaction a lot. And like black is heck is uh, a lot of the time is going to be there for tutors and stuff. Um, if I want removal uh, in that deck, I, a lot of the time I'm probably looking at um, even like double pip removal, like assassin's trophy and a rub decay over even like chain of vapor, just because um, it's so much easier to do impactful blue stuff. And then also have the mana left over to be able to remove with a uh, green and black instead. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely um, <laughs> some of the, some of these patterns get a little get a little wonky as you get up there in colors and yeah. uh, what what you're actually looking for can sort of switch away from. I think I mean you know we when we went over like the primary uh, and to a certain extent the secondary thing we were talking about good heuristics right cheaper yeah. is better broader yeah. is better um, but then you can certainly run into a trap of just oh, I'm putting in a whole bunch of things that actually are kind of awkward to cast, especially casting a whole bunch of interaction at once yep. when, you know, I don't necessarily want to be fetching a lot of this all the time or, like, having this color. Um, and, uh, I mean, this is certainly where where gold fishing can, can help a lot. Um, yep, 100%. In, in sorting out your colors. I, I think often interactive decks don't, like, you don't get a lot of information from gold fishing them. Um, in terms of how they actually play out, but it can definitely help you sort out or identify potential mana base issues. Yeah, that's like the one thing that you could do is like, okay, I'm just gonna like make land drops and cast spells while trying to hold up interaction. And if I can't both cast my spells and hold up interaction, there's there's a problem here, and we're gonna have to go like get to the root of this. Um. Also, as always, I mean, this is uh, I'll say this now because it's a uh, this is like all pretty heavily tied with mana base stuff. Um. If you're tuning an interactive suite, um, it gets a bit murkier, like, rather than, like, I have, like, this deck with, like, 20 slots left over, and I want to build an interaction suite and see if I have any slots left over to, like, just put in, like, fit in um, cards that I just want to play. Um, if you're refining or tuning an existing interaction suite, but also doing refining the rest of the deck in the process, this can all get sort of weird um, and can sort of, like, end up with, uh, iffy results a lot of the time if you're like oh i'm gonna like tune my like i'm having a hard time casting uh all these interactive spells at the same time that i'm winning the game i'm gonna like tune my interaction suite and then also like i'm I'm making some mana base changes for unrelated reasons or semi-related reasons and then you end up like back in the same spot because you made changes in like opposing directions that you didn't really initially see um so that is all to say um when we're talking about the effects of the rest of the deck on building out your interaction suite um, and not just sort of your abstract wants. Um, 
you should probably be doing this stuff like one thing at a time. So build out your interaction suite, test the interaction suite, see how that goes. And then if you're also making other changes, like hold off on evaluating those until like you've like fixed like one portion of your deck at a time. No, no, just just do do everything all at once and just make <laughs> yeah. like conflicting changes. Just put in a card, you know, put in mana that lets you cast the card that you're cutting. Yep. Uh, all right, we're gonna cut all these dorks and then put it in a cradle. Then we're just gonna like load up on just like green, green artifact enchantment removal as well. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> um. Yeah. So unless you have anything else to talk about color requirements, because I know you love talking about mana and colors. Um. As do I, but I think you have a special appreciation in your heart for that one. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's just something that like I think I think this is where just like playing a lot of games is yep. and and noticing something like that you you start to realize like you know it's it's an opportunity to make either a good or bad decision that most of the time isn't relevant, um, and then every once in a while it it definitely pays off. Yeah, um, and and it starts, it starts with building your deck, and then it happens when playing your deck as well. <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, next up uh, on the sheet here, I I wrote this one out, but I'm sure you probably have stuff to say about this too. Uh, is uh, considering so once you have like a basic interaction suite built out that like sort of fulfills your again abstract wants and your needs for an interactive suite, and you're like pretty confident in it. Um. Before you go running into a game with that, uh, with all that interaction and all that new shiny counter magic, um, I would say uh, consider this as well. Is your deck already mitigating some of the reasons why you would want that interaction? Maybe you haven't played like any games with this deck yet, or any games with this package, with this strategy, maybe, um, and you're just sort of like building out an interaction suite with it. Um, maybe you don't actually need, uh, all of that interaction or a certain class of the interaction that you're playing that much, um, because of some of the stuff the rest of your deck is doing. Um, a big one like this is, uh, if you're already playing a bunch of stacks pieces in your deck, maybe there are certain parts of your interaction package that, like, really just aren't needed as much, um, because the stacks already carries a lot of that torch, or, uh, carries a lot of that load. Um, this would be stuff like if you're playing, um... If you're playing things like a bunch of tax effects, um, it might be uh, worth it to just, like, sort of shave back on counter magic, not just because um, you're less able to cast it because you're playing tax effects, but also, like, it's going to cost your opponents more to do more stuff in the same turn. So, like, maybe you don't need that Flusterstorm as much if you're playing a bunch of tax effects and rule blah, because it you're sort of covering that axis already. Um, and you just sort of have a bit of anti-synergy, or you just it's just not really that, like, required. Um, a big one as well for this is, uh, maybe your strategy, um, doesn't actually care about what your interaction is built to interact with. Maybe you're playing just, like, a, a ton of permanent-based, uh, removal, or, sorry, like, uh, permanent targeting removal. Um, you're just playing, like, a bunch of Disenchants, Episeju, Odawara, Nature's Claim, Assassin's Trophy, uh, Abrupt Decay, and just, like, like, actual factual Disenchant, Force of etc., etc., etc. Um... That might not actually be that great if you're maybe just, like, playing a deck that already bypasses a bunch of the stacks that you might already be worried about. Like, you're worried about, like, oh, man, th these rule of laws could be really tough. And it's like, well, like, does your deck operate through rule of laws pretty well? Do you actually want it gone? Maybe maybe you shave down on the interaction a bit there on that axis. 
Yeah, definitely. I think this was like a big thing where, you know, nature's claim was like, a, you know, a, a very much a staple for a really long time. And then uh, people started like experimenting. So, oh, I'll put in force of vigor, um, you know, because it hits two things and it's free and it's great. And then when Basaju came out, uh, I definitely started realizing it's like, okay, there aren't, I don't know if I have the targets to justify all three of these. Yep. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes it's only two. Sometimes it's even just one, depending on if you're playing. You know, like if you're in black and then you also have your trophy and your decay, then maybe you really only need one of them. Um, and I think that that's, uh, you know, sort of a, an interesting uh, thing to look at in terms of, like, yeah, how often do I actually need to remove the things that I'm going after uh and you know like i mean there are some decks where legitimately the most threatening card or like permanent the most threatening long-term permanent an opponent could play is a ristic study yep <laughs> um and just yeah having a bunch of ways to deal with that can be very strong and maybe you don't need as many ways to deal with creatures if you're uh like if your deck just isn't really threatened by a lot of creature matchups um, I mean, maybe you do because a lot of the creatures that are threatening kind of need everyone to be able to deal with yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. But like, maybe, maybe you're like, you already have removal in the command zone, right? Maybe you're playing like a Halana deck. Um, and it's just like, you just, you, you need to take that into account when you're building an interaction suite for that kind of deck where it's like, yeah, like I already have like built baked in removal in the command zone. Same thing with Armex, right? Like I, I have baked in removal in the command zone. Maybe I could just, like, go a bunch lower on the targeted removal here and just sort of, like, lean on my commanders a bit more. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I was just saying, like, <laughs> with creatures, more than other decks, like, like, if you don't care about rule of law, you don't need to remove it. If you can, like, always block things that attack you and you're not concerned about your life total, that doesn't mean you <laughs> sure. can ignore a Grim Hireling. Right? <laughs> sure. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Or Winota or Najila, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and then also, like, there are always, like, other uh, mitigating factors for actual requirements here as well. Um, even just, like, again, like, uh, maybe you just, like, don't... Uh, this is a very toxic way of thinking about it. I don't encourage people to build decks like this, but... There, there's a lot of decks that are like this. Um, maybe, maybe you're playing a deck in colors that can support a bunch of interaction, uh, but your strategy, you just like really don't want to be tied down to like being table police like ever, <laughs> and like don't want to have to like actually interact with people. And uh, maybe the deck's just like built in such a way that um, when you make win attempts, you uh, make one, and then the next turn after that, you make another one, and the turn after that, you can just keep making win attempts forever. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe. Depending on your personal playstyle, you can just start trimming on interaction there as well. Just um, you sort of rely on the deck to do its thing uh, more, and you just sort of want to make space in the deck for more, maybe more explosiveness or just more consistency on those winter temps. My life playing with Reed. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a honestly fair criticism. I feel like I'm better now. I I, I tend to play play table plays more. It's a <laughs> It's a change of the times, man. You can't you can't convince people to just like put manager in and counterspell a Dovin's video in their deck anymore. <laughs> Speaking of, actually, I think Dovin's video is actually a pretty interesting one to talk about right now because it is 
I feel like it's it's seen a fair amount of uh, play over the years that it's been out. Obviously, much less recently. Um, I I think uh, mana is at probably more of a uh, premium than ever in terms of uh, evaluating interaction suites right now. Um, but it's dude, it's it's a weird one to evaluate, and I think people. I think people got Veto wrong a lot in terms of, like, what decks it should have gone in. Yeah, there, there's definitely some truth to that. I think it's also, like, it's... I think it, it was a weird one because, like, the reasons... The reasons it's good... Or, like, the reason it's, you might say it's not good isn't, like, because people misevaluated... Like, you know, the, the most obvious reason you would think that it's not good is just, oh, it's hard to cast. Like, it's two mana, two different colors, you know. Yeah. Um, and, like, that's actually not at all why it's not good. Uh, and it has a lot more to do with just how much stuff it doesn't stop and how... <laughs> yeah. How much less valuable uh, an this uncounterable counterspell counter <laughs> has become yeah. over time. Yep. With the printing and popularity of... You know, like obviously, SWAT, we, both Veil of Summer and yeah. Deflecting SWAT were printed after, uh, after it was. But uh, both Misdirection and Mindbreak Trap see a lot more play than they used yep. to. And uh, you know, Ranger Captain, Grand Abolisher, like all of these things, uh, Dovin's Veto <laughs> lines up pretty poorly against. So I think people like got it wrong, not in that they thought they could cast it and they couldn't, but more in that they thought it was way more effective than it was. Yeah. And honestly, also, there's, a there's like, a whole, like, sub-game to Vito as well in terms of, um... I, I Like, people were obviously playing it in, like, primarily, disrupt like, decks that wanted to be disruptive with their interaction packages, like, stopping people from winning and such. Um, there were, like... There was a time when people were, like, playing a, a decent amount of it, even in uh, decks that were, like, relatively proactive, wanted to win the game uh, relatively... Uh, easily relatively... Um, uh, quickly, consistently, um, and a lot of the time, actually, in those decks, depending on how you sequence things, uh, the veto can actually be a bit of a liability, because a lot of the time in those decks, you sort of want to, like, draw interaction out of the rest of the table, and just having, like, a hard stop, and that, like, potentially being your only interaction, um, could get pretty awkward in those situations, just because you're like, well, like, it's sort of on me to stop this, uh, but I can't really, like, bait the person that's going for a win here to, like, throw stuff back at me and, like, try to get more interaction out of their hand, because this is just sort of, like, a hard no, and I, there's just, like, no maneuvering around it with, uh, traditional counter magic, unless you also yeah, have, like, although, a swatter or veil. Although it does, it does also have some strengths, um, in particularly decks that their threats are, you know, hard to counter, read creatures, yep. um, because, you know, Sometimes you have, like, your creature-based win con in hand, and you go, like, eh, there's probably, you know, not a counterspell that hits creatures, because there just aren't that many of those that see a lot of play. It's, like, Force of Will, some decks play Mana Drain, occasionally you'll see, like, a Delay or an Arcane Denial, and then, I guess, Mind Break Trap. Yeah, um, the big ones. <laughs> so, so, like, Dovin's Veto can be really nice, because, you know, if the table has one Force of Will... And then, like, a Dispel and a Flusterstorm and a Swan Song, you can force a creature through with just the Dovin's Veto. Um, because there's only one counterspell that actually hits yep. the thing you're trying to resolve. Um, 
but it definitely it doesn't work you know it's not any better than a negate when you're trying to protect an ad nauseum yeah right? exactly. or like almost never right? yeah i guess it can't be blasted but uh <laughs> but like it's yeah super like you go <laughs> cast ad nauseum i'll you know they counter it i'll protect it with dovin's veto they go cool i'll counter your ad nauseum again like um so as as a protective piece of interaction uh it only works it only works when the thing that you're protecting is much harder to counter than a different counter spell would have been but it can yeah. be effective in that scenario yeah definitely um that being said i i i started a discussion about Dylan's video because i thought the card was interesting this is probably the episode to do so um, let it be known that we could probably have a similar discussion to this one, and there's probably a similar amount of nuance to, um, like, most counterspells that see play in CDH right now, outside of, like, I don't know, like, stuff like the staples that nobody is ever cutting right now, like Metal Misstep and Force and such. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's... I mean, I guess the other one... What? Like, I guess the other class that we could talk about in terms of, like, Discussing them individually would probably be a like offer an arcane denial. Um, I know Lyndon's gonna have an aneurysm that we talked about arcane denial at all. I, I don't think we could talk about arcane denial. <laughs> no, without Lyndon here. All right, sure. We'll talk about offer then. It's a decent standard, I'd say. Um, offer is also an interesting one, huh? Because it's a. Uh, I, I think it. I think it does deserve some special comment, especially on the interaction episode, um, slash counter magic episode, um, where it's the. It it feels like the downsides and sort of the incentives on it are a lot harder to read. Um, at least like for uh somebody just like looking at a, a general set of CDH lists, it's like it, it it feels like it would be difficult to come up with a reason why you would and why you wouldn't play it. Um, in even lists that like look relatively similar. Um, it is actually sort of interesting, right? That like. I, I think probably the first place that a lot of people's uh, minds would go is like, oh, yeah, like, if you're playing oofs and, like, null rods, <laughs> you could probably play offer you can't refuse for free. Um, which, I mean, like, there's some truth to that. Um, but also, like, there's just the value of giving your opponent treasures is very, very fluid depending on what deck you're playing, what deck they're playing, what stage of the game you're in what, like, specific situation in that stage of the game that you're in. Um, I don't know. I'm just thinking, like, maybe maybe we can give give our valued listeners some frameworks to evaluate it on, because it, it is interesting, in my opinion. Um, I, th I think probably the biggest one would be, like, uh, are you using it to, pro to protect your own stuff or disrupt uh, other people's stuff? Because, obviously, having a one-mana counterspell that can counterspell anything that's not a creature is... Uh, uh, pretty unparalleled in the uh, sort of range for mana cost value uh, or mana cost in general. Um, but the downside is pretty huge. I think a lot more often than people would like to think. Yeah, it's definitely uh, it's definitely like a very uh, tough one. And I think like I interestingly like I think I kind of got it <laughs> it's like i got it right for the wrong reasons and wrong for the right reasons a little bit <laughs> sure um i think i think like obviously there's a huge amount of hype for the card when it was spoiled i've seen like a few people recently who i would have expected to to like the card um sort of talking down about it a bit um 
and it's it's interesting i've just uh you know like every time that card has been played against me i haven't been unhappy yeah uh, <laughs> yeah and that like makes me not want to play it as much um but obviously like it is an extremely flexible card uh and you know like swan song has been a, a staple forever um and it's you know it's more broad than than swan song admittedly not like a lot more not, broad yeah much more um, i mean it we handle artifacts um as an add-on which is uh i don't know like and i and, and the the very rare planeswalker but, yeah that's uh, true <laughs> but i think i think like uh it, it definitely suffers a lot um as protective interaction because often when right. you're picking your window for for something that's going to require protective interaction your goal is to uh you, like your goal is to instead of running your opponents out of cards you're trying to run them out of mana right like yeah somebody taps low to cast something somebody you know interacts before your turn and then it's like oh wow there's only two or three mana from the rest of the table so you know, now's my window. Yeah, we're going and ram. Uh, countering the first counter spell from someone with an offer you can't refuse often <laughs> just lets them play their second one. Yeah, um, and so I think that that's uh, like I think people who have used it that way have definitely uh, soured on it a little bit, at least yeah. on that front. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's it's uh, you know, a card that. I could certainly see, you know, metas where it's fantastic and decks that absolutely want it. Um, but also it has a lot of liabilities that aren't necessarily the most obvious at, at first blush. Yeah, face value. Um I think a a big one as well is that uh it's it's sort of like valuable if the things that you're targeting are like if if you're very consistently targeting things that are likely to be the only uh version of that effect in that opponent's hand uh at any given point in time and that you care so much about that you don't really care about giving them the extra mana for um so like yeah. using like one mana to counter a rule of law being cast or one mana to cast or one mana to counter um like just some massive value engine one mana to counter a ristic study is uh really important a lot of the time where it's like yeah you could have the two mana because you're casting this rustic side of because you don't have cards in hand. Or like, you know, like countering countering a Nas, right? You're like, okay, like get the Nas out of here. You can have the mana back, sure, but like it's 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 off the table and I had enough flexibility to be able to handle like something else potentially as well, right? Yeah, it's uh it's one that can can definitely be tricky to use. And and like I will say though, I have seen more times than honestly I would have expected. Uh it just giving the mana for somebody to attempt something else like equally yep. bad or yep. comparably bad uh i've definitely had it happen that someone goes like cool i'll cast you know this like i'll make this sort of win attempt and then they get offered and then they go uh cool i'll slam this breach or i'll slam like a wheel or, <laughs> yep. or, or something like that i, I that, were you uh, were you in the game when i was playing where uh you got I, double offered. I, yes, yeah, I, 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 I went for. I forgot what I was going for, but I was going. I think. I think I was going for a power play that wasn't necessarily going to lead to a win. But I was. Uh, I was like not really. 
like wanting to let it get countered. So I got offered twice in the same turn, and which there was an oof on the board. Um, so it made a lot more sense where it's like, oh, okay, yeah, like we'll just like give you the treasures. These aren't really worth anything. Um, so get offered twice. And then I looked at my hand and looked at the board. I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> the fact they offered me twice means that I can spend this one mana removal spell to get rid of the oof, and then I've dark ritualed off and trying to make a wood attempt, and then I'm just going to kill you anyway. <laughs> but anyway, I, I think I think people... Uh, I, I think more than enough has been said about the downsides of offer, and I will say, I, I'm, I'm still not a particularly huge fan of it in a majority of lists, honestly, at this point, but... It's it's an interesting one to evaluate, and I think it's worth singling out and talking about because it's one of those ones that I think uh, there there are a few there are a few pieces of interaction in a lot of removal suites out there that are sort of hard to evaluate with just the stuff that we've gone over so far. Um, I think like maybe one more of those, even though it's uh, seeing less play now, and certainly never saw a whole lot of play, is a uh, Narset's reversal. Um, you can also group this one in with like reband, but a lot of the time you'll see reband being played uh, less in decks that actually just want to counterspell and more like Karkzakashima or things that are like more using it because you're either discounting the cost or they're like casting a bunch of them and like be able to profit off of them. Um, Honestly, I thought you were just going to say often you're going to see remand being played less and then just stop there. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, not also not a bad, uh, not a bad observation. Um, but yeah, so Narset's Reversal is actually a really interesting one as well. I found that, um, like, really powerful effect, right? I'm going to spend two mana to tax your DT by, like, another one in a black, and also I get a DT. Um, or, you know, I'm going to copy your Nas, and you dump your entire hand trying to get up to five mana to cast Nas, and I'm taking your Nas now, and you can have it back, and you're left with, like, two lands and nothing in play. Um, and I'm Nazing. Um, so, like, really powerful effect, but, um... It's sort of interesting the incentives that it gives you, right? Where a lot of the time, because it's so narrow, like you're, it's basically a dispel for blue, blue, um, in the uh, disruptive case, um, like writing off, like assuming, so assume that your Narset's reversal is getting countered when you're casting it and you're just sort of feeding it into a counter spell war. Um, it's like a blue, blue dispel, right? Um, which is like not, not a great rate. Um, you could definitely do a lot better than that. Not being able to hit creatures sort of sucks in comparison to counter spell and mana drain. Um, just, like, having some issues with, like, hitting even, yeah, like, stuff like Rhystic Study. Um, but the fact that if you do manage to resolve it on something, it can be very powerful, sort of, like, leads to this interesting case with it where you're just more likely to play it in decks where you, it's already supported by a bunch of counter spells and counter magic that can cover the cases that it's not really super effective at, and where you're already holding up mana for other people's turns, means it gives you just a lot more of an incentive to, like, hold up mana, and then, like, if you actually need to handle something, you can spend your cheap interaction. But if somebody just fires off a tutor, you can just sort of narsets reversal it and then use their tutor as your own at instant speed. Um, I'm not actually... Do you... Can you think of any other counter spells that have sort of, like, similar incentives right now? Because I can't really come up with anything. I mean, I guess, like, reversal. the only... It, it, it's... Even less of a counter spell than Narset's reversal, but um, dual caster mage definitely can have oh sure yeah some honestly similar play patterns there. And you know what? Um, that's actually not even. I wouldn't even say that's a bad example either because we have historically seen, especially in stuff like mono red, um, or even is it honestly people playing uh, like twin casts? Um, I mean not actual actual twin cast. Uh, what fork forks? There we go. Um, but. Uh, people just like playing fork because being able to 
basically have like red red counterspell um in a counterspell war is like not particularly inefficient and then also being able to like double up on other people's tutors as well again or uh like value plays is a is a pretty pretty nice upside um so you know what let's let's expand let's expand the narset's reversal discussion out to like all like forks dual caster mage and fork and twin cast and all that stuff um it's sort of an interesting category uh, just because, yeah, it's like the incentive is that either you're playing it in decks that don't have access to actual counter magic or decks that have a lot of counter magic already and are just sort of like looking for additional things to do at instant speed. But like yeah, not really it, in between. The, it also like the various different versions of these effects can line up slightly oddly against um, things that aren't literal counter spells. Um, right. <laughs> like, obviously, you know, if people are removing, like, you're, you're casting your, your mono-red combo, whatever it is, and you have a fork, and then someone goes, cool, uh, I'll, I'll assassin's trophy your, one of your combo pieces. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, for, fork's like, not great. Um, it's one of the few, like, pieces of instant speed interaction that is unironically excellent against silence. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. Oh my god. <laughs> like, arguably way better than, than just a counterspell. Yep. Um, but it does nothing against Veil of Summer, which is kind of odd, because typically... Like, you would think they're, like, expect... relatively similar effects. <laughs> but... Yeah. But uh, they're very much not so... Or they're very much not with how they're interacted with, uh, with copies. Um... So yeah, it's a it's a really like it can be a, a really weird space to get into. Um I think it's also effects like that are very uh tricky to play. Um because uh you know, like it's hard to decide when you have a narcissist reversal, it can be hard to decide um you know, do I want to just cash this in for like a tutor that's on the stack? Um do I do I want to hold it? Um, do I want to like give somebody the uh, the opportunity to to sort of two for one? Like it can be really risky yeah. to you know someone casts uh, a, an important spell and you're looking you have like first priority and you're looking at your Narset's reversal and you go well if I cast this and it gets countered then or like and the original spell gets yeah, countered I'm just a card and two mana down for nothing <laughs> yeah yeah um but obviously the the ceiling on it is is just so insanely high like <laughs> nothing is better than uh forking if you can time it right forking the spell that's already getting countered yep <laughs> somebody fires off a counter you get it and they don't and that nausea is like yes yoink thank you <laughs> Um, so it's, uh, yeah, they're, they're, uh, very much high risk, high reward, uh, cards to play. Yep. Definitely. And again, interesting incentives. I, I, I would actually like to see more low color red decks start considering the forks again, because I think they're actually like, I, I think the right metas, they're actually like very powerful a large percentage of the time. And the fact that you can like cast them off of red rituals is uh pretty neat, pretty hot. Um, especially for like protecting your own win attempts. Um, and I think that one actually dovetails in with, I think, probably the last, like, major point that we're going to get into, uh, which we sort of touched on a bit earlier, but I did want to get through it fully. Um, 
which is uh, something that Morgan wrote down here, which is just sort of talking about what kind of interaction density you can actually support in your deck. Um, and specifically, uh, I was looking at this one to get uh, dovetailed in nicely with, uh, you know, Narcissus Versal being a card that you want to play in a deck with a bunch of counterspells that's already in it, which is uh, how easy it's how easy it is to actually like hold up the mana to cast your interaction. Um, because we sort of talked about it, we talked around this one a bit, but we haven't really like dug into it. Um, you want to like sort of go ahead with uh, what you had as primary points here? Yeah. So, so I think um, the on the on the first point in terms of density and and what you can support, um, you know, obviously you need you need space for your other cards in the deck, um, and you need to be figuring out okay what you know what does my deck actually uh like what is my deck actually doing to to see more cards um because you know if i have this really high density of interaction um d does that mean that i just often won't have enough gas and if i don't have card advantage in the command zone or or consistent access to card advantage engines um you know you can you can definitely get yourself in a rut where um you just keep falling farther behind to avoid losing um like this this would be something like the kickar example yep. where it was a very interactive deck people knew that they'd like let me interact with stuff and then if i didn't develop a good engine i would just be slowly digging myself into a bigger and bigger hole over time um and and you know this is uh i think a very common thing as we as people explore like alternate commander options in the same color combination i think is like uh a really important it's important to understand when you you can and can't just like copy paste an interaction suite with a commander swap yep, yep. um and uh and and so that was sort of what i meant in terms of you know having having the gas you need and then the other thing is in terms of playing it um like what is your deck trying to do when is your deck casting permanence when is it developing its engines um you know you can have a deck that that like can enter you know starting on turn four say you'll have like a very established board state and you can afford to hold interaction and you'll have engines and it'll be great um but you know what about the turns before that if your deck is and, and so like you might think in a deck like that oh well i'll play i'll play like good you know interaction the more expensive but more flexible more powerful interaction L load me up on my mana drains and counter spells and all of that stuff um but then you don't you also need to realize oh um you have to if i'm there. like <laughs> yeah if i'm like always trying to curve you know if I'm always trying to curve like Dork into Timna into you know whatever, um, oftentimes I'm gonna just die if I'm like tapping out on turn three and all my interaction is stuff like Mana Drain and not stuff like uh, you know like maybe Mind Break Trap or going deeper Force Negation Misdirection stuff like that. Um, and so you do need to be cognizant of you know what interaction is good at at what stages of the game and when you can support what kind of interaction and making sure that those line up relatively well yeah definitely and 
and and sort of under that in the opposite direction rather than you know expensive interaction is weaker early um often i <laughs> yep. see people uh put in counter spells that are pretty soft in decks that are going very late um like like counter and like like a spell pierce spell on pierce turn miscast. seven yeah is uh oh boy is it not where you want to be that's um, yeah the number of times that and, I've seen people pay for spell pierces with their, like, Priest of Titania that taps for, like, again, like, five on turn eight or whatever. It's just like, yeah, that's that's not where this one's intended to be used. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, like, even to a certain extent, um, oh, what's it called? Uh, delay in, like, yep. really slow yep. decks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, like, when someone casts something that was delayed... Boy, is it a bad feeling. Yep. Uh, <laughs> it's like, oh, right. That Yeah, that Seaboard Beast is coming back down. Huh. Right. And nobody found the actual counterspell for it? Great. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so you definitely, you just need to make sure that, like, if you're taking the, if you're taking the game late, your interaction is built to uh, accommodate that fact. But also, particularly if you're going to be tapping out a lot early. Um, then there are there's certain sacrifices you need to make uh, in that department as well, um, and I, I guess I would also say obviously that's that's not exactly part of the topic, but um, if you are trying to develop stuff, like you know we we talked a little bit about, or does your interaction uh, hit stuff that's already sort of covered by the stacks you're playing? If you feel like you do need to be developing permanence it can be worth it to throw in some of the softer stacks to sort of alleviate that. Like, if you don't want to stuff your your deck full of card disadvantage or, like, situational counter spells, but you do need to be developing a board state of some kind, um, you can sometimes look to permanence to shore up those weaknesses. Yeah, definitely. Uh, cool. Oh, actually, uh, just something came to me just recently, uh, that I did want to get through, because, uh, it's less relevant now, but, uh, it's still something to be aware of, as, uh, just, uh, also considering your interaction package as part of your win condition, um, this is a big one that I've seen, like, so many people run into, <laughs> of just, like, I'm playing a deck that makes infinite mana and draws its deck, and then sometimes maybe I'm also like playing consults and stuff. I just like don't have access to my primary win conditions. I don't have my Thoracle anymore, or I just am not playing a Thoracle, um, and I'm just trying to kill with uh, stuff that is just in my deck as is. Uh, maybe I'm playing like a Lightning Bolt as my primary win condition, but I got exiled earlier in the game. Um, just like having the consideration of having at least part parts of your uh, interaction uh, package uh, being cards that can win you the game if you just loop them over and over and over again. Um, obviously, Bolt is a uh, pretty common one in uh, red infinite mana decks that you'll see because the, the rate's not bad. I mean, obviously, it's fucking lightning bolt. Come on. <laughs> rate's pretty good. Um, less great in CDH, but still. Uh, and it can actually kill people. But you also see stuff like this with... Um, uh, Particularly winds of uh oh, shit not winds of a bit sorry winds of a band is is infected my mind I hate it it's I it's all I can think of it anymore no uh but winds of rebuke is like the the classic in this uh one I guess the even more classic would be reality shift um just to exile people's decks but um just considering like hey if I'm playing a deck that tends to make infinite mana and draw and then I need to like actually end the game somehow just 
looking at your interactive package to see if you can uh, fit some additional things in that'll actually let you end the game on the spot if you need to. Uh, and also, like, aren't, like, terrible, terrible things to be casting in a game of CDH. Cool. Uh, are, are we are we are we doing the return to Wingon list? Is that the? <laughs> oh God, dude! I the, honestly, I'm sort of happy that we're just like most decks in the format are just like off of Twister Loops and off of Infinite Mana stuff at this point because it just saves so much explaining. <laughs> it's okay. Here's. So, win list doesn't actually mean win list. It means that you're playing a win con, but it means that the things that are outletting your win con aren't actually, like, things that are dedicated in those slots to outletting the win con. And then also you have to explain... All- anyway, you have to explain fucking Twister Loops to people who only played standard no, cards. Man, that, that's that's <laughs> why I was, uh, was playtesting a deck uh, the other day and realized I had to do a... Uh, Culling the weak endurance loop. Oh yeah, that <laughs> endurance has made some twister loops just absolutely cursed because of the stuff that you have to do with it to get it to loop. <laughs> just like okay, either I could loop equal to the number of green cards in my deck <laughs> minus one, or <laughs> I need things that can sack an endurance. <laughs> or like I've definitely had to set up uh, where I was like abrupt decaying my endurance. Yeah, like, this. <laughs> This, this sucks. sucks. Terrible. <laughs> um, actually, in- endurance is a fun one to talk about as well. I, I I'm not going to drag this episode out for too much longer, but endurance, I will say, is uh, a card that I think exemplifies a couple of things that we've talked about uh, in this episode so far in terms of like both splitting your uh, mana production, so it being like a green interactive spell uh, for other people's win attempts is actually pretty great, especially when you're hard casting it. Uh, and then also, like, prioritizing, you know, the the cheapness of being able to cast it for free is uh, very much a large part of its power and sort of uh, the evaluation of playing it as a card. Um, and then also, you have to, it also shows you that you also can't just, like, not pay attention to the rest of what a card does, um, even if you're only caring about one effect, because uh, Holy Moly is a endurance, a great attacker and a pretty good blocker. <laughs> yeah, definitely, uh... <laughs> Sometimes a three four with reach, real real good. Yep, uh, <laughs> just not bad on its own. We have a uh, munched many a Timna with an endurance, dude. It's I hate it because now I have <laughs> to be paranoid. Yep, is it? They're holding up a bunch of green meta with one card in hand. Well, I guess we'll make this attack. <laughs> Honestly, life's hard for the Timna pilots. I gotta say it. I'll say it. <laughs> so is that so is much that mental load? I, I'm not there's, sure that's the. There's tank. just there's just so much mental load. It's just God. Tim is just such a fucking hard card to play correctly, man. It's just the skill level is unreasonably high on that one. It's just it's it's unreal. Tim and Piles don't get the respect they deserve. For legal purposes, that was all a joke, and all like also for intensive purposes, because like I don't, I don't, please don't get in my DMs about Timna. I know it's a, it's a busted card, no skill required. I'm gonna DM you about Timna just, <laughs> just right now. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think we're. I think that's good. I think we're chugging out of steam on that one, at least for the lines of thinking that we had there. Uh, we could probably talk about interaction forever, but I'm not gonna belabor us or belabor our listeners with a three-hour podcast where we literally talk about every single piece of interaction in the format in depth. So, I think we'll cut we'll cut it off there for the main topic. Um. Uh, and then in terms of uh everybody's favorite uh section of the podcast. I'll give it a quick gut check. Gut check. Um, 
we again are not doing uh, gut checks for the most part for a two-person podcast right now it's just not particularly interesting although rest assured uh when we have Lyndon back and when we have guests on uh we will 100 still be running gut checks on those episodes so keep your eye out um we will be posting those in the discord uh, and if you're listening to this as your first episode or you've never visited our Discord before, um, you might want to go check out there anyway because we have a bunch of all of our historical gut checks uh, in a channel on the Discord and you can go vote and see what everybody thought about them. So go do that. Um, we also have an empty space here for our listener questions. Uh, we try to get to a listener question every episode for uh, non-special episodes. Uh, we don't have one for this episode, uh, but if you'd like to submit one, you're more than happy to. Also in our Discord, we have a listener question submissions channel that you can go submit uh, questions that you'd like to have answered on the podcast too, and we'll try our best to get through them. Uh, for our patrons, uh, we also have a listener question uh, submission channel in our patron section, uh, which actually has priority over everybody else. So if you're a patron and uh, would like your question answered, we will uh, prioritize yours above the general public's for a general public. Um, but if you would like a question answered uh, particularly timely or in a uh, timely manner, um, you're more than welcome to throw a couple of bucks our way and uh, come join the Discord and uh, throw some questions in there. We also have a channel for um, for uh, topic suggestions as well for patrons. So if you've ever wanted to have an entire episode done on a certain topic, we can't guarantee that we'll uh, cover all of those, but uh, we'll certainly take them into account when we're scrambling pre, uh, pre-episode to try to put show notes together. <laughs> as Morgan can confirm. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> anyway, uh, that one, in that case, because those are the two things that we usually do after our main episode, um, will about wrap it up for this episode. Um, if anybody would like to reach out to us with uh, questions, comments, or concerns, you can contact us on Twitter at Into the North Pod, via our email at Into the North Podcast at gmail.com, or on our Discord server, with the invite link for which can be found in the description for this episode. An extra special thanks goes to all of our patrons who help cover the expenses for our show and allow us to work, uh, to work toward improving the quality of the podcast. If you too would like to become a patron, we're at patreon.com slash into the north podcast. It's also in the description for this episode. Another way you can support us is uh, by our TCG player affiliate link. So anytime you want to purchase something from TCG player, use our affiliate link, which is also in the description. A portion of your purchase goes towards supporting the podcast. Thank you, as always, to the band Vox Cadre for our lovely podcast music and to Nate Slover for our equally lovely podcast logo. Next episode will be out in two weeks. Until then.